Hello, it's Vikas Pota, Chairman of the Vaki Foundation. You are listening to a session from our Global Education and Skills Forum, a place where leading politicians, businesses, philanthropists, activists, and of course, the world's best teachers share, debate, and discover new ways for education to transform our world. Keep the global conversation going and share your thoughts on the topics discussed with the hashtag GESF. Um, so what we want to sort of unpack here a little bit is, um, you know, what do ed, you know, what do startups need to know about the investment landscape, and what do um, and what do um, investors look for in ed tech startups? Um, one of the issues is is applying. I think probably you get a lot of questions along this subject about um, sort of. I'm from work with TechCrunch, you know, we're all about, you know, AI and blockchain and crazy stuff like that. So looking at the EdTech market is often sort of quite a sort of a different, different space for us. Oops. Guys, sorry, just, just hit stop on that alarm. <laughs> just hit stop. <laughs> it's me. It's my stupid phone. Um, so what do you, what, do, what sort of things do you look for? What are the key propositions you look for in an ed tech startup. Yeah, yeah uh, and maybe just um, a bit of background on, yeah. on Emerge. Um, yeah. So, you know, we're London-based, um, small ed tech seed investor. Um, we invest predominantly in uh, European founders uh, with ideas to um, address global markets. Uh, you know, 50% of the companies we invest in are in the UK, another 25% in the rest of Europe. Uh, and then another 25% sort of um, opportunistically investing around the world. Uh, we invested seed stage, so our usual ticket is somewhere between 50 and 250K um, in sterling, so we, we go in extremely early. Um, over the last five years, we've done 54 investments, um, companies we've backed include PyTop, uh, which some of you may know, um, Aula, Bibliotech. Uh, and we, you know, we really like backing companies that are, are addressing sort of hairy big problems in education um, and where um, actually having a helping hand, getting in, in touch with sort of decision makers um, in institutions, governments, etc., cetera, uh, can make a massive difference to them. And that's what we tried to focus on in terms of how we add value to our companies. Um, but so, so back to your question, Mike. So what are we looking for? So I think uh, so a useful way to think about the ethic investment landscape is that um, you know, traditionally, uh, VCs have shied away from, from this sector. Um, and so, you know, if you look at sort of the amount of TechCrunch articles about edtech, there's you know, probably still a, um, a sort of lackluster approach to, to that space. Um, and I think the reason... Why do you think that is, though? Yeah, I think the reason for that is that traditionally it's been very difficult to build... Uh, you know, scalable, high-growth companies in education. So, the, you know, the big companies in education are like private school chains, um, publishers, big test prep companies, etc. Um, they're often, you know, privately owned or private equity backed. Um, what, what changed in the last five years, say? Because I certainly, as a journalist, I've noticed a, a sort of a change in of a, a flip of about two, three years ago when actually, uh, frankly, ed tech companies had... <laughs> You know, didn't seem to be able to get to that next level, and that something changed. What was it that changed? Yeah, so I think just technology is fundamentally changing how easy it is to actually build companies that have the potential to um, achieve high growth in education. Um, and I think part of it is 
um, you know, the, the first um, industries to sort of fall to software were the easy ones, you know, um, e-commerce, et cetera. And yeah. so, so, you know, that's been done. Marketplaces. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so now it's like people are starting to innovate in some of the more difficult spaces. Um, and, you know, we're seeing that across the board, whether it's mobility or health, um, you know, education is just, is just one of those more difficult spaces. But um, on, a, on a fundamental level, you know, I think things that have changed you know, like traditionally, you would you would scale a company by providing content, um, you know, localizing that content to all the different markets. Like every country's got a different curriculum, so it's very difficult to localize. And then you'd protect market share. You, you protect your your business, your profitability through market share. Uh, and what's changed is that actually with technology, you know, you, you now have um, you know pretty much every person on the planet connected. Um, to the web or, or through, through a mobile phone, and so you can reach them direct. You don't have to go institution by institution or government by government. Um, we, you know, these companies are providing software platforms, not content, so they're much easier to localize, and often there isn't very much localization that has to happen at all. Uh, and these companies are you know, using new business models, so as you know, Network effects. Um, they're using data and and insights about their customers to uh, so grow and more like traditional startup business yeah. models. Yeah, exactly. And but um, and what about from an investment point of view? Because um, traditionally, ed tech space probably was a more poor cousin in terms of VC investing. Um, and has that changed again? And um, are you uh, you know um, how do you look at it from an investment point of view? Yeah, so over the last three years, there's been more venture capital invested in EdTech than over the last 20. Um, so as That's a huge jump, isn't it? Yeah, so, so the sector itself is really massively growing. Um, but, you know, compared to other sectors, it's, it's still a, a small, small cousin. Um, and, you know, I think the other thing to say about that is that the majority of that investment really is happening in the U.S. and in China. So, you know, they... They take 18, 90% of global ed tech investment, and then everyone else is like, you know, far behind. <laughs> exactly. And um, and what markets in particular are you interested in? I mean, I think probably people might assume that it's um, some of the more sophisticated Western markets, but also emerging markets are coming up now. Uh, yeah. So. I guess there's, there's different ways to slice and dice markets. So geo is obviously one, uh, and geo as, as, in, in, as in where um, you know is it right. is it um, sort of level four countries or level three and level two countries too? Um, and, and you know innovations happening happening everywhere. Um, but as I say, the majority of investment is still happening in sort of the U.S. and China. So you know the majority of companies that we back, um, and you know we have a particular strategy that, that is, is um, you know, not something that most other people uh, pursue. Um, are you, you know, we usually back European founders that want to address, most of the time, the US market, sometimes China. Uh, and the reason we see an opportunity in that is because actually, while 25% of you know, tech companies are founded in Europe, they receive 1% of the capital, and we think that's just this massive arbitrage opportunity. Fantastic. We're joined by Bill Ningba, everyone, from uh, Blue Elephant Capital, right at the end. Give a round of applause for Bill. Poor chap. Just coming. Now, is your microphone on? Do you want to switch it on? Oh, it's, yeah. 
Hello? Yeah, okay, everyone. Right. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I know everyone's... Uh, this is sort of the, uh, the day when... Um, uh, just before the big conference sort of thing, so everyone's sort of coming in on their flights. Um, we were just sort of talking about, actually about um, what investors really look for and why it is that EdTech has actually started to come up in the last uh, couple of years. Um, and uh, Jan was just saying, actually, that uh, the US and China... Uh, are uh, huge areas of focus at the moment. Obviously, Blue Elephant. You are, are you the? Am I right in thinking you are the first VC in China to look specifically at the edtech space? Yes. Could you use yes. the microphone? Ah. Great. And um, so, what, what 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 attracted you to the space in the first place? Uh, I entered the VC arena because I have been working in uh, education for over fifteen years. So I was, uh, uh, I, I, I take some benefits or advantages from Chinese education. And after that, I was, I spent about five years in New Oriento and seven years in Tel, the two largest uh, ad tech companies uh, in the world, uh, valued at about 20 billion US dollars and uh, uh, 12 billion US dollars in New York Stock Exchange. And then uh, I left Tel because I was in the strategic investment department of Tel, and I found many uh, opportunities for early-staged ad tech companies. So we founded uh, Blue Elephant Capital about three years ago. And um, so uh, what do you look for? I've already asked Jan what, what this question, but what do you look for when you're looking at an ed tech investment? What are the key elements you're looking for from a startup? Mm, uh, I feel that uh, uh, Tel or, or Neuroento or VIP Kid, uh, they have done a great job, but we still need a lot of uh, ed tech innovations in China uh, or in the world as well, because uh, we still see that there are uh, three kinds of uh, uh, needs in Chinese uh, education. One is the uh, consumption upgrade, uh, which means that uh, uh, rich or affluent families or upper middle class families, they need a better education, uh, no matter online or offline. Uh, the second need is that uh, uh, for the uh, education equivalence, because you know, China is a very imbalanced country, where the top cities like Beijing and Shanghai is, is international cities, and well, the the third tier or fourth tier of cities is like uh, uh, the third world. So, uh, attack FU is the only way to uh, solve this problem. And the uh, last one is the education. Uh, biosystem because we feel that we need media, we need talent solutions, and we need uh, other kind of supply chain for the whole uh, education industry. So we feel that ad tech innovations is our three key factor uh, are the key factors to solve this problem. So we introduced the, the VAC Combinator mode into China, and by far we have invested 75 ad tech startups in China. And um, now, Jan, we're in, in, the, in the sort of tech world, we're always trying to push the, um, push the needle, you know, AI, virtual reality, augmented reality, blockchain. Um, how cutting edge does an ed tech startup have to be? Um, because, uh, or, or can it really, are there a lot of low-hanging fruit 
in the um, in the simple sort of app space, for instance? Yeah, I, I think it's a brilliant question. And um, the reality is, as we were saying earlier, the space is still very nascent. And so there are lots of low-hanging fruit around just using the mobile format, for example, to reach customers directly or to you know, take the lessons we've learned from enterprise SaaS, um, software as a service companies um, in the enterprise space and bring them to uh, create operational efficiencies inside educational institutions and so on. So um, actually the first wave of sort of innovations in, in education technology were, were not about these new fundamental technology breakthroughs, but rather through you know, about creating new business models uh, and to to just digitize a lot of um, processes and 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 bring in workflow automation. So you know a great example is a company called Two U, um, which is you know a U.S. company helping universities diversify online, start um, offering courses uh, online that. Um, in order to reach um, you know, larger amounts of students and also to, to drive operational um, efficiency and, and more profitability. And there, you know, the innovation is A, in you know, helping universities go digital, because they don't have the DNA to do that themselves, uh, and B, it's in a business model innovation. So these, these guys uh, operate on a, on a ref share uh, agreement with the universities, right? So they, they go and acquire this, this, the students, they deliver the courses online using the university's brand and content, and then they do a ref share with the university. And that's opened a massive market, which is growing very fast, and um, which uh, is, is not about these fundamental technologies. Um, that said, I think there's you know a bunch of really interesting applications and opportunities for these, um, and I, I think you know China and Chinese companies are actually a great uh, leader in in that. Um, so maybe, Bill, you want to take that that part of it. <laughs> I love it when panellists take over, and then I don't have to really work. Um, well, yeah, I was, funnily enough, I was going to ask that question. I mean, what are some sort of leading examples of ed tech in China that you think are really fascinating at the moment? I presume you might have mentioned some of your portfolio. <laughs> Uh, it's not in my portfolio, you know. You know, in, you know, China, China has a very unique market in the two consumer market, which means that uh, parents are willing to pay an extravagant amount of money on education uh, for their kids. So that's why Neuroento and Tel are the leading training companies, education training companies uh, on this planet. But it feels that in the last, uh, you know, you know, you know, Neuroento was founded on uh, in 1993, and Tel was founded on uh, 20, uh, 2003, and uh, in the year 2013, a new company called VIP Kid. You 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 all have ever heard of that probably. Uh, it's 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 repre represents the online uh, live live streaming of classes. Uh, between foreign t uh, U.S. teachers or Australian teachers to Chinese kids. So I feel that in the last five years, this is one of the uh, innovation change to Chinese uh, attack arena, arena. We have seen the online one-on-one -on -one English and one-to-small-class uh, one English and one-to-large audience English. And now they are trying to use uh, artificial intelligence to resemble the real teacher, which means that uh, uh, with fewer teachers, you can get equivalent results. And the, 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 the subject has expanded from English to 
other other major uh, other subjects like Chinese, like math, and the STEAM classes, and uh, even some kind of uh, PE classes are trying to get online. So I, I feel that online uh, online classes online class was the largest trend in the last five years, and oh. uh, we, we seem pretty so successful. So virtual learning. Virtual learning, virtual learning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a, it's a online uh, live stream between teachers and uh, yeah. students. That uh, that's a good question. Good question. Because how much of this is just going to go virtual, Jan? I mean, um, you know, what's the split? What what do you think is the split going to be between um, in class, real world, but using tech, say, you know, on uh, tablets, versus just things just frankly, just becoming fully remote, you know, um, and virtual, uh, and less real world, shall we say, and institutionalized. What's, what do you think is the kind of split, or is it going to sort of be a, a gradual change, Jan? Yeah, so, so I think, you know, the first thing to understand is that, you know, the more complex the topic or the more complex the learner's needs, the more face-to-face -face intervention is, um, is valuable. Uh, and so... Um, you know, a lot of this digital stuff is useful for an entry-level sort of introduction to a topic, um, but um, actually the, the real power comes from enabling teachers in classroom uh, to be more effective. So um, just to give a small example, we've just backed a company called TaylorEd, um, which we co-invested uh, in with Y Combinator, um, who use machine learning approaches to um, understand the levels at which students are performing um, and their different learning uh, preferences, um, the, the context in which they learn, and then they group those students dynamically to pr provide um, teachers with um, lesson plans for each group that give them the ability to provide differentiated instruction, i.e. different learning strategies for different types of groups um, and grouping these groups dynamically. Um, Th that enables a teacher to do what they're taught to do, which is to, to use differentiated instruction for different students, but which in practice they find just impossible to deliver because the amount of time required to plan lessons like that is, is just not viable. Um, and so, so I think that's sort of the, the first really important wave of innovation that needs to happen is to enable stuff that is happening in the real, wor real world to become more efficient. Uh, and then th there are interesting, um, interesting, um, also companies that are helping um, bring some of the stuff online. So, you know, in, in order to teach, you need to be certified. Um, but what we've seen in a lot of other markets is that sort of um, where there's a barrier to, to trade through certification, um, online marketplaces have come in that have established trust between suppliers and users. Um, and have enabled new markets to be created. So you know, Uber is the obvious example, where suddenly you're in a stranger's car and you trust them to take you somewhere. Um, and there's, there's new models like OutSchool in the US, which um, are hosting online classes with just you know, teachers from around the, the country that homeschooling parents are using um, to deliver really high quality um, educational pr provision to their kids. Uh, which and that's not necessarily going through sort of the the traditional system. So um, I think there's a long way to go to bring stuff online. There's definitely opportunities there. Fantastic. Um, let's now do some Q and A. We've got about two minute, two three minutes of Q and A. If anyone would like to ask a question on the investment side, we have some roving mics. We'll just get those because we uh, 
we'd like to keep the um, audio for the video later, which is going to be cut. If you keep, put your hand up if you've got a question. Let's go this row here. First of all, if you could just stand up, sir, just there. Right, go ahead, just stand up. You can say who you are and which company you're with, and then just, yeah, ask a question. No statements, go for it. EdTech is synonymous with evidence-based. In making your uh, investment decision, how much does that play a role in, oh, has this thing worked? Is it being tested and it works? And what kind of traction have you gotten? Or you simply will act on ideas in some cases? Almost not at all. Thank you. So do, you do you want to take more questions? Or yeah, we'll yeah. take more questions. Um, by the way, just a quick, if you're, uh, hello, roving mic person, right, stay near the person asking the question so you can grab the mic back off them. Um, okay, go ahead, sir. Hi, um, I'm Pablo Fetter, uh, founder and CEO of uh, CLU. Um, venture capital. Uh, traditionally, the success rate in venture capital is, uh, well, they say, you know, you, you have... If you invest in 10 companies, uh, five are going to fail, outright fail, go bankrupt. And, uh, and then you're going to have, you know, if you do a good work, uh, a great success with uh, one or two. Now, I think you, I heard that you invested in 60 or 70 companies. What kind of success rate do you, do you expect? Uh, uh, that's a good question. Uh, we, we have invested in 75. And... Uh, uh, more than 90% of them are still uh, working uh, quite well. That's because the high demand of uh, uh, education uh, supply chain, which means, which means that both uh, f uh, parents uh, or students or schools need better quality uh, education product or, uh, or, or information system for the schools. They, they need higher... They, they need very much and they need higher. So as for ad tech companies, as long as you are uh, doing well in your product quality, you will find your market. Questions, hand up, keep, keep going. Uh-huh. Uh, and also that we have, we, 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 are, we, we are located in Beijing and uh, we have, uh, our limited partners are all from listed companies, like top listed companies in China, about 10 of them and uh, a lot of, of our limited partners are also uh, education entrepreneurs. So they, they do not, they, they not only support their money, they have their uh, time and expertise for those, for those uh, ad tech entrepreneurs, which means that we, we got the very best of the, that stage ad tech companies, which uh, the, the, the result is that 90% of our uh, portfolio companies survives, and 60% of them got the next round of financing, and 30% of them got a higher value, get a value, value, valuation of more than uh, 50 million US dollars, and maybe about 10% 10 10 of them get maybe 50 million, 50 million uh, US dollars. This, 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 this is all because the huge Chinese markets, and uh, all because the uh, hot VCs in China, uh, because they have they have to fund arenas like education uh, when the pure ad tech and uh, oh, the pure technology and uh, uh, 
investment uh, does not get much progress. So we, 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 we did have a very high successful rate. Now some more questions. Put your hand up if you have a question. There was one over there on that side as well. Okay, so you've got a microphone. Go ahead, yes, sir. Yes, good morning. Alan Greenberg. Um, I'm with Wise Nose, and I have an interest in a portfolio of both education and healthcare. I'm curious to ask, well, Jan, I know, but I'm curious to ask both of you, what is the investment in the individual rather than the technology? And in terms of your experience, how do you see uh, companies pivoting and changing over time to fit the market opportunity, given your interest in early-stage investment? Um, so we, you know, when we look at investments, um, companies usually have the beginnings of a product, but uh, you know, there's very little traction. And so going back to the gentleman's earlier question, that's, that's why there isn't any evidence to look at when we evaluate companies. Um, so really the only two things that matter to us are, um, you know, how big is this market? Um, you know, is this just a huge addressable opportunity um, and have they identified a really burning need that um, you know, people urgently want to, want to have solved? Um, and the second one is, you know, is this a team that can really deliver? So, you know, we, you know, we look at various different factors. Um, we, we like investing in people that are slightly delusional um, and who you might not want to hang out with um, <laughs> socially, but um, who just uh, end up making great entrepreneurs. Um, and you know, the the majority of of edtech companies end up um, changing their model in some way or another. And so you're you're never investing in the exact model that you're seeing, but you're investing in the people and the overall opportunity that they're addressing. Of course. Another question at the front there. Do you want to stand up? Yes, I probably need to stand up because I'm so short. I'm Violet Slow from Inclusive Business Lab. Thank you for um, the presentation. Um, I, probably my question is coming in very differently. Um, we, thanks for um, the insight uh, about the education in China. Um, absolutely, some of the big uh, cities like Beijing, Shanghai, or even Chengdu coming up now, and uh, Guangzhou actually have a lot more resource than other third tier or even fourth tier city. Uh, the more to the west, the more need with the um, education technology, I think. Um, we come from very different approach. Um, we didn't start with money, although I worked in the investment bank for 13 years. Um, we see there's a need about the quality of the content. And personally, very, I'm very hesitant in working with people like yourself coming, thinking about money. Uh, we have the program already growing um, really amazing um, so quickly that the whole city, city to city, city to country. And really the, where we're coming from is bringing the best from the world to reach out to all. That's why from the very beginning, we didn't really want to take money. We have parents want to pay us. We didn't take the money. We have government even think about it. They become volunteer. So now we all here it's about the education. And I'm very conscious about how people turning education become money-making machine. How do you see that? Like, education technology is important to scale. This is why we are in the position that having a lot of technology partners coming to us because they're looking for contents. Some of the company that you're working with, um, or you mentioned that has been doing successfully, but also we did research. 
there's also a lot of criticism about the content, the quality. We are in the position we have the quality, and I'm hesitant to partner with any technology company that for the scale up. How could we have this balance? We stay with having the integrity, what we want for the education, the impact for the, for the young people, the development, while we can be sustainable to reach out to all. Right. Back to you. Great question. Uh, I feel that uh, uh, capital is a neutral war word. It. Because uh, when you use the capital uh, in the right way, you got good results. Because, you know, like Stanford, like Harvard, they all got great money, so they can provide good services for their kids. So nobody blame Stanford or blame Oxford for uh, having donations or having money. So I feel that uh, uh, from my perspective, uh, capital is a neutral word. And the second thing is that uh, uh, you have to uh, make a, a profitable business to attract very good talent. Otherwise, I, 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 do not, I, I do not believe that you can get good talents to make high quality uh, educational products. We see all kinds of Hollywood movies. They all have very high paid uh, producers or actors or, or technicians or, or something. So I feel that uh, with capital and you can hire the top talents in uh, in, in, in making education contents. And uh, still another thing is that I feel that uh, uh, technology is the only way to uh, balance the e inequality of education from cities to cities, from countries to countries. Because in general, uh, technology make the good contents cheaper uh, instead of more expensive. So I feel that capital, uh, does do some good things in education. Sorry, I just respond this very quickly because yeah. you quote the example of Stanford and Harvard. These are reaching out to those who can pay the fee. How can we actually bring the education to reach out to all the quality education? Yeah, how do, we, how do we democratize it? Yeah, do you have some thoughts on that? Uh, sure, I mean, so, so the way we think about it is like if, if you want to make an impact in education uh, quickly, you need, you need to grow at incredible rates and, and reach incredible scale. And the only way to do that is to be venture-backed, um, or, you know, that, that's at least a very good path. In order to be venture-backed, you need to have a credible proposition that, uh, you know, that, that is comparable to investing in, like, a scooter company to a VC who needs to create returns for the LPs. And you know, we, we believe that by investing in companies that um, operate in the education space and that are creating real uh, solutions for people that are on the front lines, um, you know, we we're backing th things that are creating a positive impact in the world. Um, you know, a lot of technology companies in education are about bringing affordable, high-quality education products to a much larger group of um, of customers. Um, and are creating the sort of impact that you're talking about. So, you know, a good, a good example uh, here, um, just to make it a bit more specific. Um, we, we backed a company called Lingumi. Uh, they provide um, English language training to two to five-year-olds. Um, you know, the reason that matters is because, you know, if you speak English, you earn more money. 
Uh, and um, so lots of parents around the world want to teach their kids English, but the reality is that most of that teaching starts at the age of six when they get to school. And the best language learners in the world are like below the age of six. <laughs> so how can you bring affordable English education to those kids uh, when currently the only solutions available are getting a private tutor, which most people can't afford? So Lingumi, as the specific example, is about helping turn the parents into home educators, even if they don't speak the language themselves, using this application and the content and making that super affordable. Um, and you know, I think that's just not uh, not possible without technology. Absolutely. Let's make this the um, okay. Second to last final. Go ahead. Hi. Um, good morning to everyone. I'm Alonso from Syllabus. Um, so I have two questions. Uh, the f they're going to be really quick. Just, just uh, uh, to, don't worry. Uh, the first one is: Do you, as investors, feel that there's kind of like a bias to uh, markets that are like kind of like bigger, maybe Europe or like Asia? In front, like for example, when a Latin American startup pitches, like their traction may be good for Latin America, but if you compare their numbers to like an Asian startup with the same age, numbers may be huge in the other markets. So, do you think that there's a bias there? And that's the first question. And the second one is like, um, for tech startup that has a B2B model, um, I've heard a lot, I'm Latin American, that they are not scalable. So what do you think about that? Thanks. Thanks. Scalable. Okay. <clears throat> okay, venture capital uh, uh, is, a, is a relatively new thing. It started in 19, about 50 in Silicon Valley. Uh, it's all because that good, good technologies are expensive. They have to pay in advance to make some new things out and then uh, sell it around the world. So venture capital tend to uh, be technology driven and uh, tend to uh, get bigger markets like the Europe, like uh, 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 US, like uh, China and Northeast, in Northeast Asia and India, countries like that. But as for, I, I, I do not know much about uh, uh, South, South America because I, I only to Me I, I've only been to Mexico. It's not, a, it's not that, 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 that South America, right? So I feel that uh, venture capital tend to pursue uh, bigger markets. That's a fact. And after they have conquered the big markets and they can, uh, they can find other relatively small markets. And uh, I feel that is, uh, is, uh, it's a fact. Um, and there's a question there. Yes, David Berg from Emblaze in the United States. Um, it's hard to talk about reform and innovation in education without talking about the bureaucracy of education and governments in our countries. I wonder, from you all being at the very cutting edge, if you think about Airbnb, for instance, as a company that goes out, innovates, and the governments have to adjust and adapt. So I'm wondering what thoughts you have around the future of how schools look like actual what the four walls of schools look like in 10 years and what governments need to do to catch up. Thank you. Um, so we've, we've seen a bunch of people try to innovate the school model and for that matter the university model and I think um, have just found it extremely difficult to innovate within government constraints. And so, you know, on a personal level, I think the that sort of innovation will come from, unfortunately, extremely well-funded private players, you know, big fee-paying institutions that 
are just financially able to experiment with new uh, new formats um, because they're not not necessarily as bound uh, to these rules um, because that's not where they're getting their their capital from. Um, and then we'll see hopefully innovation spill over. So. Um, you know, one one good example of this is um, the London Interdisciplinary School, which is um, you know a company we backed a year ago. Uh, they're a privately funded, uh, for-profit university in London, uh, which are bringing um, a completely new educational model to the UK. Um, it's pretty well known in Finland, but um, in the UK this is this is radical. Um, basically, students go to that go to this university will not study subjects, but they'll study problems, and you know they'll learn the, the most important mental models uh, from all the different disciplines that matter to those problems and learn how to apply them. They'll spend a third of their university education actually with employers, uh, working on these specific problems uh, in highly curated internship opportunities that are paid. So actually, a third of their student fees are paid for by the employers. Um, you know, th this sort of thing is um, highly relevant. It's what the market is looking for. There's there's a big push from students and there's a big pull from employers for this sort of thing. But just this could never happen uh, if it weren't a private institution. Fantastic. Well, that brings a conclusion to our panel. Uh, please thank uh, thank our panelists. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>